This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Basically, the uh, you know when I explain the book to people, I tell them, um, I'm trying to think about what difference does it make for the world of theological reflection, um, which I think of as anything where we are um, uh, talking about God, especially engaging scripture and proclaiming the gospel. Um, what, what difference does it make that Christianity has undergone this sea change in terms of its composition over the last hundred or so years? Um, most people are familiar with that idea. Uh, you know, they've heard like the majority of Christians now live outside of the West. Um, and that is only increasing, uh, Africa, Asia, Latin America are becoming the new centers of Christianity. And I'm interested in that, the question of, does this make a difference? Should it make a difference? Mm-hmm. How should it make a difference to what we do in the world of theology? And the most common response to that is, well, why should it make a difference, actually? Um, theology is the science of God, uh, right? That's sort of the etymological you know, meaning of it. Um, and if we are studying a God who is beyond, obviously beyond culture, beyond time, uh, outside of us, um, it really shouldn't matter where we're coming from. Uh, God is the same. And uh, I think there is often underneath that a fear or maybe an expectation that um, what we're proposing is kind of uh, revising the whole uh, heart of the gospel um, in order to make it more politically correct, mm-hmm. more, uh, suited, you know, maybe even just more contextual for these Asian or African or Latin American Christians. Um, and I think, uh, that, that's, that's sort of the first step usually that, uh, almost always when I explain this to someone kind of in a church, uh, context, that's, that's the first question that arises, especially in North America. Um, and it's that kind of skepticism that, oh, you just think diversity for diversity's sake is, is somehow that, magically good or something. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> that or it's the be, cult yeah. of the cult flavor of the day. So you're, you're yeah, the yeah. I mean, it can, it can take a lot of different forms. I think, uh, sometimes it is raised in, I think fairly bad faith. Uh, I don't think this is normally what it is, but sometimes people are, are reacting to what's going on in their little cultural, uh, context. Mm-hmm. And so, or their local cultural context. So if that is kind of a concern about political correctness, that'll often mm-hmm. pop up. I guess the new term in the U S is wokeness. Right. Um, <laughs> that, that will be, uh, that, that will sometimes be there. I would say I would, you know, I try to engage the best version of the objection. And I think the right. best version of the objection that I often get from church folks is an honest concern to say, uh, hang on, let's make sure that, um, the gospel and the, the scriptures are preserved and, uh, and that God is able to speak to us. Um, and if he has been speaking clearly to us in our church, um, why, you know, what do we need to mess with, right? We just need to do sort of pure biblical theology, dive deep, get engaged, um, understand the, the historical context, the literary context, all that. And, um, 
all the stuff that's happening on the other side of the biblical text, um, the, the reader's context, really um, shouldn't play that much of a role because like our whole goal here is to, to understand the Bible on its own terms. Mm. Um, I would say that's the best version of the objection. Which is um, interesting to say on its own terms because almost all of the biblical literature is Asian literature, <laughs> geographically correct. produced in Asia, correct. mostly yes. by Asians, if not entirely, depending on uh, who's writing yeah. it. Um, yeah. so, so you're already in a cross-cultural experience as soon as you crack the pages, right? So. Correct, correct, correct. I was going to ask you about, you know, just thinking about in terms of church history. Um, I think there's a naive view of church history, which is the one I carry around with me all the time, (laughs) having just taken a few classes of church history in seminary. Sure. Um, But the the kind of view that basically, well, this is how it worked in the early church. There was a few theologians from a particular region who essentially told everybody what to believe and how it is. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so what's wrong with that little caricature? Yeah. Yeah. And actually I would add to that. Uh, uh, sometimes part of that view that often gets passed around is, and actually then things got worse when, uh, when culture started playing a greater role. So there's this mm. thing called the Hellenization thesis, uh, that, that says, you know what, you know, everything was awesome until Greek culture really took over Christianity and, and destroyed, right. you know, the heart of what Jesus is all about. And, you know, our goal is to sort of move beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, or sometimes it's actually the, the West, right? The Christendom, right? Christendom ruined Christianity. And now we need to get sort of beyond or past that. When everybody um, knows it was Luther, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so actually, some some biblical scholars like N.T. Wright will, uh, will, you know, will will I think intentionally provoke a bit here and say like it was the Reformation. They really ruined right, things. Right, right. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, we often carry around a what I would say is sort of a, a a view that some culture at some point um, sort of ruined the Jesus uh, that I know and that I've come mm-hmm. to see. Um, or the, 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 the Bible that I, uh, that I believe in. Hmm. Um, so I think the, in, the, the interesting thing about the Christian church is that it is established as the first entity of its kind. There, there was not in the Greco-Roman or the ancient world the concept of a multicultural community that is all one nation or one people. Um, Outside of Israel. And yeah, yeah. So the the uh, the thing about uh, the church from the start, from Pentecost and moving forward in early church history, is they are really um, unusual in their willingness to just let the gospel or the Christian faith or the liturgy get translated into whatever local language the church moves into um, to uh, enable kind of local theologizing to emerge very quickly and to be empowered even. Um, 
And, uh, and actually it, it's sort of, uh, uh, among all early religions, maybe the most culturally promiscuous, right? Or right. It, it's not right. Just going to move into a culture. It's going to like, you know, embed itself and assimilate and, and kind of look very different. And you see this like as early as the second century, you see, you know, Syrian churches that look really different from uh, churches elsewhere, for example. Um, and the linguistic and, diversity flowed with that as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think all of that comes down to uh, the, the church's worldview formed at Pentecost um, and in this, you know, very early stage that from the start, it's, it's this very unique uh, multicultural entity. And actually, you know, Revelation solidifies this. It says, mm-hmm. all the way to the end, when redemption happens, um, what do you have? You have this community from every tribe, tongue, and nation uh, worshiping the Lamb. Um, and so there's... Which I feel obliged as the director of the Center for Hebraic Thought that this all comes from Genesis 12, Isaiah 56, Isaiah 66. Yes, like this is, yes, This is all yes, there from which, the beginning. It's Absolutely. Just, uh, makes it, the final turn, I think. In, it makes the final turn, and it is a bit surprising in some ways, right? Uh, I, I still think... For Hellenistic like, in Jews, ways, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I think if you're a Hellenistic Jew in the first century, you're going to read the you know Genesis 11 and the Genesis 12, and you're going to think, okay, Tower of Babel gets undone through the founding of the people of Israel, and it, it gets undone through uniformity, you know, at really unity in within this one family. Um, and instead, God undoes the the, I don't know, however you want to think about it, the penalty of Babel, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I think right. the, the, the consequence the of Babel at the very, yeah, yeah it doesn't right. seem the to be punishment, it's just about whether yeah. this is a curse or not, right. it's just yeah, exactly. the consequence, yeah. Um, the consequence of Babel is undone instead through Pentecost, where you have uh, the blessing of diverse languages and cultures, and the bringing together of all of them, and the ability for them to harmonize and, and work together. Um, and then Revelation 7, I would say, sort of caps that. If you had any doubt that maybe that, you know, if you might have thought, yeah, we started multicultural, but we're all going to sort of meld into one and we're going right. to be kind of, uh, yeah. you know, we're going to pick a language and we're all going to, you know, just go for that. Um, Revelation 7 says, nope, uh, that's yeah. that's not God's design for this people. Yeah, take that, Esperanto. <laughs> uh, um so when I f- saw this book, Why Evangelical Theology Needs the Global Church, I saw the cover, and I'm not going to lie to you, as my eyes are dropping down to where the author's name was, I was expecting to see, I don't know, an African, <laughs> South American, or Asian yeah. name, if I can just say it that that yeah, naively. Sure. Yeah, I yeah. saw Stephen Pardue. I was like, okay, well, man, I'm going to look this guy <laughs> up, see what he looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. and I, you know, if I can just, you know, ask the question, the, the Michael Scott question here is, uh, what gives you the right? <laughs> like, why, why are you, is this, um, yeah. are, are you the guy who has discovered something and you're trying to tell other people where the bread is or what's mm-hmm. going on here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say something like that. Um, yeah. So just to be straightforward, uh, I am of white American heritage. Uh, my family's from Texas, uh, I do have a weird biography uh, or unusual biography. When I was two months old, we moved to a small, well, it's small by Asian standards, a million people uh, right. town in uh, in the southern Philippines. Um, and so from when I was conscious, uh, the Filipino church was my 
my place. Uh, that's where I was saved. That's where I was discipled, baptized. Um, and other than 10 years spent doing education in the United States, um, the Philippines has been where I've lived my, my whole life. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm a little unusual. Now, I don't, I don't claim by that status to have, you know, to, to be a, a, you know, I'm not a Filipino citizen. It's actually really hard to become a Filipino citizen. Um, like most places. Uh, we've looked into it. Uh, but, but it's, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it, it is to say that um, I've had the sort of serendipity and, you know, providential blessing to get to be sort of put in the middle of, the growing and vital majority world church in the Philippines and in Asia in particular. And, um, you know, really my first task when I moved back here after finishing my PhD was not to write books, but to try to edit them, to try to bring Mm -hmm. together scholars from around Asia and around the world who could, um, you know, share what they're learning and give their, you know, offer their perspectives uh, and I found that extremely enriching. I did that uh, 10 books over 10 years, um, and, uh, loved it. Um, but I actually realized at some point there is actually a book before all of that that needed to be written mm. <laughs> because I was encountering this objection and concern a lot, not just in North America, actually, but even in Asia. So mm. similar to what, what I've talked about earlier, you know, I, for example, my second year teaching here had a Chinese student, super bright, enthusiastic. And we started talking about what what role does culture have in your in your theological reflection? And this is part of the first theology class I teach at the seminary here. And um, and he says, well, yeah, OK, culture tells me what not to do. It actually tells me where I need to move away from Chinese culture and toward Jesus. And this is actually a fairly common perspective, especially among first and second generation believers hmm. um, in the majority world church. Um, and so. Uh, you know, what What he was sort of grappling with was, um, actually, I'm not sure I want culture, you know, uh, having a seat at the table when I'm doing my theology. I really want to just do pure biblical theology. So it actually sounds very much like the, the North American church's objection at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm sympathetic to that concern. And I just recognize, look, all these books that are actually offering, uh, we've offered a vision of what... Uh, what theology will look like as the church changes its composition. And I think it's beautiful and exciting, but I actually need to, uh, I, I want to help people uh, who are skeptical or even just not sure about that vision to say, why are we doing this anyway? Uh, what is this all about? And I, and I wanted to try to answer that from a biblical theological place. Um, yeah. Cause I think they're actually good biblical reasons and really good, actually, evangelical reasons, even though evangelicals have been of all the Protestant or even all of all the Christian sort of subgroups, we've been some of the slowest and most skeptical to adopt uh, an approach that allows culture a seat at the theological table. Yeah. Um, so going back to who, who are you as a white guy to, to talk on this yeah. topic, may, uh, now thinking about your biography, maybe I should ask. Um, who are you as a Filipino race? <laughs> a majority, like the majority <laughs> yeah. of your life has been in the Philippines. Do you yeah. feel like you understand culture in America or is it still a little <laughs> bit baffling to you? Yeah. I mean, uh, so I read about this a little bit in the introduction that I, I, well, yes, it's a little bit baffling still. Um, 
I, you know, like a lot of, I think increasingly there are people like me around the world today, right, who have grown up in multiple cultures and have kind of hybrid cultural identities. And what it usually feels like is you're always a foreigner a little bit. <laughs> like you never feel like you fully belong anywhere. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, you you kind of acquire the ability to blend in most places. And so you, uh, you, you do kind of, you understand, I don't know, I think it gives you access to or some awareness about mm -hmm. both, uh, you know, both of your, uh, both sides of your hybrid culture. Um, you kind of see the weird stuff uh, that people immersed in those cultures don't tend to see. Um, yeah. And I, I think it makes you sensitive to um, how much of a role culture plays in shaping people's thinking and their, even their right. vision of what reality is like and, what yeah. the biblical view of the gospel is. And um, it is fun, like taking Americans. I'm sure it's true. Actually, it's true. I've been on trips with Brazilians as well. Uh, when you take them to another country and you, and it's their first time really encountering another culture and, and they're like pointing out everything like, Oh, look at how they, and then they point out things that like they do back in their, I was like, look at how they put their dogs on a rope when they take them outside. You know, it's like, it's yeah, called yeah. a leash. We do that in America too, you know? Yeah, but yeah, for many people, yeah. that's the first time they realize um, how much culture is feeding in. So I guess there is a unique perspective that you do have to speak on this issue of giving culture a seat at the table. I mean, who doesn't want to give culture a seat at the table? I mean, I, I, I think or do, do you think there are any trends in our thinking or even our speech where we talk about culture as a fundamentally bad thing? Because you say in the book, like, I want to. I want us to revalue culture as a fundamentally good material thing. Um, yeah, yeah. So what's yeah. the, what's the interference here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I think it shows up in a few different ways. I mean, uh, so one sort of superficial thing that, uh, you know, it's just good to note is um, culture uh, doesn't matter when you are in the dominant or primary cultural right. position. <laughs> Uh, or it matters a lot less. So uh, that's why most books, you know, North American church is about 11% of global Christianity. Uh, but you would never know that by looking at the the library of books that gets produced each year. Um, right. And most of those books are, are North American writers, or maybe sometimes European, right, who are writing for North American, uh, a North American audience. But not one of them, or hardly any of them, will ever will ever label themselves that way, right? Right. Uh, this is not North American right. theology. This is Pauline theology, or right. it's just it's just Reformed theology, whatever. Um, and uh, by contrast, when someone from our part of the world uh, writes a book and it gets published, and you know, globally, uh, it will usually have a label: Asian uh, or Indian or you know, whatever. Um, and I, again, I'm not raising that just to say like, oh, this is terrible, uh, how hegemonic. Uh, it, it does have some, I think, deleterious effects, but um, it's just to sort of highlight the reality of um, culture tends to fade into the background the more dominant you are economically and culturally. Mm -hmm. um, that And that often leads North Americans in particular at the moment, although I think sometimes it's different. Uh, like here in Asia, sometimes it's Koreans or Chinese uh, mm. who have more, you know, who have that kind of outsized influence within our economy and culture. It leads you sometimes to forget that your culture actually is really influencing the way you read and think. Um, 
So getting back to your question, though, uh, who doesn't want culture at the table? I think a lot of evangelicals, just getting back to that problem uh, that we raised earlier, is a lot of them are saying, like, look, um, I actually maybe maybe they're aware of their own cultural biases. And what they're saying is, I actually don't want to read the Bible through a cultural lens. I want to read the Bible as the Bible. Just I want pure, uh, you know, uh you know, immediate contact with the biblical world. Um, and I actually think, again, there's some really good instincts that work there. <laughs> like, I, I appreciate that people want to understand, as I know you do, uh, want to understand how Genesis was written uh, through, you know, as much as possible. They want to see, like, what was the original audience thinking um, when they read this? I Like, that's great. Um, the uh, The challenge there is when you say, and I want, and I and I want my culture completely out of the picture, right. um, and and that's where I actually think that that's a that's a mistake. Um, it's not actually God's design for the church. That is not actually a Christian approach to how we theologize. Um, and in fact, the Christian approach is more culture, not less. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is, um, God designed the church from the start to be this very wild, uh, diverse entity, in which you know, the body metaphors uh, of the New Testament, for example, like make it very clear the the goal is for the diversity to, to complement, reinforce and keep in check the excesses of various parts. Um, and when you say, I want to just bracket culture out and I just want to sort of be biblical, um, what you jeopardize is actually your ability to see your own culture and to see how it helps the gospel shine, like it kind of refracts the gospel in beautiful and good ways, and to see also how it's muting the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and more importantly, at the moment, it also mutes everybody else in their their culture, right? does that, what's generally happening is they are viewing everything through the North American cultural lens. That's fine. That's how they, that's how they're wired. That's, right. that's, and, and in some ways that's God's design, but God's design is also for them to say, Hey, my friend from Kenya, um, how do you read this, the book of James? Um, and w- what are you seeing there? How is the gospel, uh, shining in different ways in your context than it does in mine? Can and I that conversation an can't sorry. happen. That conversation can't happen until you actually value culture, until you see yeah. its its point, the point there. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, if I could give an example to that point, um, mm-hmm. it was even somewhat shocking for me. I took some college students to uh, Western Kenya with me, and I was mm-hmm. teaching uh, pastors, believe it or not, I was teaching pastors hermeneutics or biblical interpretation. And, yeah. um, and we got on the topic of how d- different words are culturally loaded and have different co- connotations, even if, if the denotation, the the dictionary definition seems to mean the same thing. And I don't know right. why, but I just picked the word poverty, like poor, right? Yeah. And I and I said uh, something like, 
and I knew my students were sitting there listening to all of this. And so I, I just said, um, do you all have poor people in your churches? And they, and everybody said, yes, we have poor people in our churches. I said, great. Can anybody give me like a picture of what it means when somebody's poor for you? What, when somebody yeah. does these things, what that means they're poor. And a couple of people gave definitions, but they were all basically the same. It was essentially they didn't have enough food to eat maybe three to five nights a week. They only had one pair of clothes or maybe only one change of clothes. Um, They might not have a house that's sturdy that might fall if like a cow ran or a truck ran into it or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I looked at my college students and I said, now, how many of you thought that that's what it meant to be poor? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And it's just yep. such a radically different definition. And then, you know, the what's obvious there is when the when the biblical authors talk about poverty, they're talking about something much closer to that definition of poverty than anything Correct. that anybody in America would ever think of as poor. In fact, I, I don't even think the word poor can be directly applied to the American context without some kind of translation, uh, re- retranslation. Yeah. Uh, is yeah. that is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? Yeah, that's definitely. Uh, I mean, that yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. Um, so, I mean, and and the the examples could just multiply, right? Because the Bible is such a rich book, and it and it speaks in such rich ways. The way that one of my colleagues in Asia puts it is that we have uh, we have a sort of superpower or advantage in that our cultures today um, have more affinity with the the culture of original readers of the bible and actually so that means that when when an asian uh christian you know picks up let's say the book of james and you know reads about like when you give the rich man a nice seat and you give the poor man a bad seat or whatever they they will they will probably very quickly be like oh yeah i i see that happen Mm -hmm. um and uh they'll very quickly understand what's going on there and be able to not only understand it better, but also amplify it, right? And and kind of see the all the various implications of it. Um, whereas, again, in North America, that's that's just not a, so, some of that is we like you're saying our 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 social stratification. There are many things wrong with it in North America, but actually, um, the bottom is a lot higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the floor mm-hmm. is a lot higher. Uh, in terms of where, you know, how low you can get before you are like, you know, uh, truly, you know, destitute on the edge of starvation, for example. Um, but some of it is also North American culture is like really uh, oriented toward equality already. Right. Um, so it's it's pretty rare. And so like when when North American reader reads that, when I read that with my North American mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, I heard about this church in New York City that like <laughs> prioritizes spots for celebrities. Right. Maybe that's what it's about. And actually, like, you know, that is kind of maybe, <laughs> maybe so. But uh, we have to kind of go to like a really extreme corner of our of our reality right. to try to understand this. Um, yeah. Whereas for most people here, it's it's right there. It's in front of you every day. You see it literally every day when you drive to work. Um, yeah. So, our, yeah. Our examples uh, are like Nazis and Justin Bieber going to church. That's our two like. <laughs> Oh, okay. It's like in those situations, of course it would be wrong to (laughs) to do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. 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 Um, the, the title of the book is why evangelical theology needs the global church. Um, maybe Mm. you could speak to that verb there needs. Why not just would benefit from, uh, engagement with the global church? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, uh, I think the reason that 
the verb needs is appropriate there is um, I think I've referenced a few times that um, if I'll put it this way, evangelical theology, what is the, what is the sort of fundamental impulse of evangelical theology? Um, I guess there's a lot of arguments about that, Uh, but definitely one of them is uh, we want to be faithful to the gospel. We want to be obedient to God. Um, And we want in our lives to echo the holiness and beauty and goodness of our creator and our redeemer. And um, I think to do any of those things, you actually have to embrace the whole church. Uh, so what, what sometimes gets called the Catholic church, small mm-hmm. C. Um, and so, uh, so I think there's a biblical argument that this is God's design. And I've talked about that a little bit already um, that, you know, uh, Pentecost revelation seven sort of refract Babel and say to the, to the, to the church, um, listen, God is intending to bring about a, a certain type of people and uh, for his own possession. And so if you want to sort of go along the grain of that, then you need to actually be serious about engaging that whole people. Just to be um, clear, so that's the, 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 the reference yeah, you're making ahead. here, just to make sure I, I understand you correctly, is yeah. the reference is it's not a certain kind of people where all culture and language is flattened into one. It's that tribal affiliations, family affiliations, languages, nation, whatever that means in those contexts. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. distinctions are still maintained, right? So right, my Ethiopian correct. brothers and sisters will still be Ethiopian brothers and sisters, and I'll be a, a, a pale, white, Irish-derived American in the new heavens yep. and the new earth, right? And that's part of the yep. excitement of yes. the unity and the diversity. Yes, yes, precisely. Okay. That, that God's plan is not to flatten or to abolish or, or destroy that or even for us to ignore it. Um, mm. uh, that, that's, I think that is the, that's the biblical argument. Um, I think so if so I would say to evangelicals, if you want to be biblical, you need the global church. Uh, you, you have to be part of this bigger thing. Um, beyond that, I think there are other things. Right. So if you want to actually be true to, you know, let's go to the theology side, uh, not just the Bible side. But if you want to be true to what it means to be a Christian, mm-hmm. um, it is to participate precisely to participate in this Catholic community which, by the way, stretches across space and time, right? So this includes also the early church and all of its diversity. Um, and you will be a, a better theologian the more Catholic your horizons are. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, if the project of theology is to sort of always guide the church away from idolatry and mm. point them back to the triune God, then you actually can't do that by trying to bracket culture out and get rid of it. Um, you actually have to do it through engagement with your local culture as well as with uh, the diversity of of the church as it exists um, today and across time. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, and you talk about the, the diversity of the early church. I don't think most people are aware exactly how far the gospel goes very early on and that that yeah why so like what's the expanse of the gospel when you say the early church, what regions are you referring to in the world? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good question. So, um, the, the history of the church is actually way more interesting, more global than most people realize. Um, some of that is, uh, now I don't want to, I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want to dress this up too much. Right. Um, uh, there is a reality that the reason most church history courses cover 
the history of the church in a fairly narrow area, you know, Italy, Europe, uh, like, you know, if you look at sort of everything up to 1500 or so, that's often where things focus. And it's true that that was unquestionably the geographic center of the church. Now, of course, we have Augustine, who's in North Africa. You know, we have some exceptions around. Um, but actually, during that time period, the church is expanding really dramatically, right? So mm-hmm. we know that it goes to India fairly early. Uh, you know, some people think the apostle Thomas actually brings the gospel there. But even if he didn't, it was like within a couple generations of, of the apostles that we have a Christian presence in India. Um it goes to China. It's actually part of the uh, the imperial court at different times. Like has the Christians Tang Dynasty, in it. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so um, uh, and then of course Africa uh, has uh, a Christian presence, uh, uh, starting with the Greco-Roman world. You know, uh, the Greco-Roman occupied North Africa, and then moving downward as well. Um, so. I guess I don't want to I don't want to overdo it because I think you can yeah. overdo it and say like oh man we're missing all the best stories. Um, but uh, but even then, like when when the gospel arrives in China and what six six something six thirty yeah or around six century in, yeah yeah um, it's called the Persian religion because it comes from yeah. um, from uh, monastic monks coming out of Persia right so yeah. I, even yeah, at that right. point so, their perspective is that it's a Middle Eastern religion right right. Correct. That's right. That's East, right. Middle East. I um, say. Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Yeah. And so that's yeah. Just so people have an idea, that's like modern day Iran, and then uh, you know that that was the center of Christianity for a while. Um, so I think what's interesting about that is, first of all, I think there are a lot of untold and unexplored avenues and stories there that are really interesting. Um, it, it's not to say that like church history courses are bad because they focus so much on. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, the, the Western story, that storyline is, is important. A lot of interesting and important action is happening there, but, Mm. um, it can, it can actually obscure the reality of how global the, the church was, Mm -hmm. has always been. Um, and it's only been actually in some ways it took the church having this new global expansion in the 20th century Mm. for people to look back and say, Oh, wait a minute. Like, this is actually not totally new. We, we were like this before. Um, in fact, it was the aberration for the church to be so restricted to Europe and, and then North mm. America. That was sort of the, the unusual part of our history. Mm. Um, uh, and I think that's, that's interesting. It does help. It helps just bring some more awareness that um, we're returning to a polycentric Christian, you know, vision. That's actually what we used to be. It's mm. not, totally brand new. Now, in some ways it is more new, although like the church, the church is more diverse today than it has ever been. Right. Um, uh, that, that is still true. Um, th- that's partly by virtue of the world is more diverse than it has ever been. Um, and, uh, and it's also just the, the Lord has blessed gospel movements in incredible places so that, um, you have definitely a greater variety of language, culture, uh, you know, uh, you know, practices, all that. And that, that's hard. It makes it hard. Uh, It's a blessing. It's also a challenge. Like Babel haunts us still uh, very much. Um, I like to ask questions usually of, uh, you know, non-Western scholars, which I'm going to count you as one. Um, Okay. (laughs) 
two questions, uh, and you can keep them short if you want, or you can expand if you want. I'll leave that up to you. Uh, when you look at the American church, what concerns you most, and uh, and what are you most encouraged by? Hmm. I'll start with the good. Um, I am uh, I am encouraged that uh, the the North American church. I mean, okay. So I mentioned earlier, ten percent, eleven percent of the global faith. Um, but producing a lot of literature. Um, and, you know, I actually don't, I'm, I'm not upset about that. I'm, I'm happy that there is such a, an industriousness and excitement about scripture, hmm. about, uh, about theology. Um, the American church, uh, I think is, is actually chock full of people who really love God, love scripture, want to learn about it. And also are generous in trying to uh, to help the gospel spread. Um, uh, maybe the the best way to put a fine point on that last one is um, when I was going to college, there was actually this movement of uh, so I went to Wheaton College for my undergrad work, and th- there was at that time a real skepticism, even for me. I'd come off you know uh, m- the child of missionaries, right. And came in, and there was a lot of skepticism about like, is missions over? Like, is North American involvement in missions done? Um, because the the legacy of colonialism was just so ugly and strong and prevalent. And um, there were some people who would say, yeah, yeah, it is done. Um, Lamansana, mm-hmm. uh, who's an African scholar who's done really interesting work on the history of you know global history of mm-hmm. Christianity. Um, you know, one of his big points is actually the great success of that movement was Bible translation. That mm. they they just went after Bible translation like crazy. And actually, when you do that, um, even if you bring it it with colonial baggage and stuff, what you unleash is the ability for a local church to throw that colonial baggage away and and develop uh, you know quite uh, robust. Uh, churches, theologies, movements, um, mm. uh, because when people have God's word in their own language, they can uh, they can do a mm. lot. So I am super encouraged by uh, how the North American Church has contributed to that and is continuing to contribute to that movement. Um, and they they really do have an outsized influence in that uh, in that world, which is awesome. Mm. Uh, uh, what am I concerned about? Um, I'm actually kind of scared to an- answer that question. <laughs> I, I, I feel like if um, it's politics, you can you know, get a pass. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think um, I, I am concerned about politics. Yeah. I, I am concerned about the, um, the degree to which many American Christians um, feel like they need to align uh, so clearly with uh, a political party or person or, Um, and and I know that that comes out of some fear, a sense of like, we need to do this to survive, which we're very familiar with, by the way, in this region, uh, we've, you know, a lot of my students are in like serious, like burn your house down, threaten your life persecution. Hmm. And so we, I understand the, the motivation of fear and, and, and actually the reality you have to negotiate and seek legal protection sometimes. Um, but I, and I know there are other factors too. Every, all of these things are complicated. There's a big cultural stew that, that all goes into it. But I, I am, 
it would be, I'll just say it would be a tragedy if that became such a distraction or a dividing point that the North American church um, turned inward and was not able to really just keep that outward face. And Mm -hmm. I actually think uh, for most North American churches, the ones that are engaged globally, that are um, engaged in mission and partnership with churches in other places, um, they tend to feel like, yeah, those, those issues at home are important. We need to think about them and make sure we're faithful in our response to them. But actually, I think it tends to take away your sense of existential threat. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for a variety of reasons that I, I think partly because you're seeing the gospel take root and transform lives in places um, that have just far worse religious protection or, uh, or, or, you know, have, you know, political climates that are actually far worse uh, than, mm. than the American mm. one. Um, and it makes you remember, okay, the church can thrive in pretty hard circumstances. And, uh, and so let's focus on that. Oh man, that's, that's almost preaching right there. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good word. Well, Dr. Stephen Perdue, thank you so much for the book and for your wisdom and your time today. Oh, well, it's been an honor to talk to you and uh, a joy to, to inter- engage with your listeners here for a little bit. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.